Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. If you'll find Joshua chapter 3 with me, Joshua chapter 3, and we'll start reading in the very first verse. Once you have found Joshua chapter 3, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. So Joshua chapter 3, starting in verse 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from the Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel, and they lodged there before they crossed over. So it was, after three days, that the officers went through the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place to go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Father, this morning you have blessed us mightily through our time of worship and prayer to you and the giving, Father, and the music and the beautiful music the choir sung to us this morning, Father, and praise to you. And, and now, Father, I ask that you focus our attention upon your word. Let us see that vision. That vision the choir sung about this morning, that vision that is you. And Father, make very little of me and very much of you, that you may be glorified in this place. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, if you happen to be joining us this morning for the first time in a little bit this year, we're looking at a vision for the church. We have been looking at the theme for such a time as this, thinking about, you know, we are here for such a time as this, just like Esther in the book of Esther, it was said to her, have you ever thought about the fact that you are here for such a time as this? Well, none of us are here by accident. None of us are getting this building this morning by coincidence. None of us have joined this church because it just happened to be the only one on the street. I believe God is in control of all things and he has joined us together as the body of Christ here for such a time as this. It's for such a time as this. If you remember, we started off uh, with our very first message talking about he has brought us out to bring us in. And we looked at that Red Sea, that bringing out of the Israelites from the Red Sea. That was the symbolism of their release from bondage. It was a, a parallel to our release from the bondage of sin when Christ comes into our life and saves us. Yet we also noticed that they were brought out from the Red Sea with the purpose of being brought into a promised land. Yet <laughs> for 40 years they wondered. For 40 years until the death of all of those 20 and older happened, they wandered in a desert because when they sent 12 into the promised land, 10 came back and said, you got to see the people. They are humongous. They are way bigger than us. They're fortified. That's just unconquerable. Yet two came back and said, you've got to see the grapes. <laughs> you got to see the rivers. You, you've got to see the abundance, the, the milk and the honey. Yet the people, the people said, we're going to go with the majority. They went with the majority because they were scared that their wives and their kids and themselves would die trying to take this land. And God said, you know what? I'll give you what you fear. And they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And we come to this place called the Jordan now in this story. Last week, if you were with us, you know that we started off looking at this story of the crossing over of the Jordan. It was the if the Red Sea was the symbolism of their being brought out, then this this Jordan is the symbolism of being brought in. Being brought in. If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that if we're not careful, and I believe it has even happened to us as a church, we get real comfortable on Saturday. 
real comfortable on Saturday because you notice there was three days that they camped out before they crossed over. Three days. If you relate that to the three days in the New Testament that are so significant, you come to the three days where Jesus Christ hung upon a cross, died for our sins, laid in a grave, and rose three days later. You know, we all agree, I believe, because we all are here, we, we all recognize that Jesus Christ died for our sins. But the problem is some of us get stuck on Saturday and never go into Sunday with the rising from the dead. We get stuck in Saturday because we've been forgiven of our sins. We have a ticket to heaven. We know at the end of the day we're going to be in God's presence and we're just really comfortable on Saturday. <laughs> but there's more than Saturday. There's a Sunday. There's a Sunday that Jesus rose by the power of God to life from death. And there's this Sunday. You know, we stand. We stand with our toes at the Jordan. We need to make a decision. Do we want Sunday? Do we want to go where God has led us? You know, God has brought us out. Many of you would profess this morning, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. But how many of us have gone in? How many of us have gone in to where God would have us be? You know, we looked last week as we started, and we looked at the preparation, the preparation of the people. We looked at the fact that they were called to set out. Joshua was told to take them from the Acacia Grove to the Jordan. Let them look. Let them look at that which they're going to have to cross. So there was a time of obedience in the setting out. Then he said, when they get there, set up. For three days, set up. And what are you going to do during those three days? The third thing he told them was, be set apart. There was a sanctification. There was this time of examining themselves. And if there be sin among the, their life, that they would confess that to God. That, that sanctification, that being set apart, the word that is used there gives the symbolism of taking off those dirty clothes and being clothed with new clothes. For us as New Testament Christians, that means setting off that life of sin and being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're camped at the Jordan. We're looking across the Jordan. And what we must do is take off that sin that keeps us from going in and put on the righteousness of Christ so that we may go. So the very first point that we saw was that preparation. Now, the second point that we see in this scripture now is not just the preparation of God's people, but let's notice the person who leads God's people. So the second point in that passage we read is the person who leads God's people. Now, in Joshua uh, three chapter uh, chapter three verses two and three it says so it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priest the Levites bearing it then you shall set out from the place you go after uh, Joshua Joshua had become the leader of the people of Israel second place Joshua had now become first place Joshua in leading. Why do I say that? Because he had been given the task to lead God's people over the Jordan and into the promised land. If you remember, there was another that was in charge. Back in the very first chapter, it says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Moses had been the one that had been in charge. Moses had been the one that had been leading. But if you know the story of the wilderness, Moses made a few mistakes. He was told to do something, and he did sort of what he was commanded. 
But if you remember, he took a rod and he struck something he wasn't supposed to. And God said, you'll never see the promised land alive. Of disobedience. Joshua happened to be one of the two spies that had gone into the promised land that said, we're not worried about the size of the people. You ought to see those grapes. You ought to see the milk and honey. Joshua and Caleb were the two that came back and said, we we need to go. God said it's ours. So this Moses that had disobeyed was told, you won't go. And now that he was dead, the Lord God said to Joshua, you are the man. You are to lead them. Moses had been leading the people when they disobeyed God and refused to go in. Joshua and Caleb were the two that said, no, we should go in. And God appointed Joshua to lead the people. And that third verse, he had told them of Joshua chapter 3. In Joshua chapter 3, in that third verse, he said, command the people that they are to go. And you'll notice in the third verse, it says, and not only was there Joshua, but it was, it says, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priest, the Levites. You'll notice not only was there a new leader put in place, this Joshua that took Moses' place, but, but this priesthood of servants was restored, was kept in place. What's so important about this priesthood? They, they were this group called the Levites, this tribe of Levi. And if you remember from, I believe it's Numbers chapter 1, somewhere towards the end of, of chapter 1, that the Levites, they were appointed. They were appointed to watch over the tabernacle. It was their job to, to take care of the, the building, the, the tabernacle, the place that they worshipped God, and take care of the instruments that were made. If you remember, there were, there were showbread tables, there were candlesticks, there was an ark made, there was a veil made, there was a tent. Everything was built very specifically. And these Levites were put into place to, to look over this worship of God. You know, our churches are set up a lot like that today. You ever thought about it? Our churches are set up a lot like that. We have a pastor like myself who oversees it all, who, who is responsible for all that goes on. That's the pastor's job. We have a minister of music that leads us in worship. And what a wonderful job she did this morning in leading that choir in worship. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful gift God's given us to have someone to lead us in praise. You know, we have Sunday school teachers. We have Sunday school teachers that, that sit and, and, and teach the Word of God and help us learn what the Bible says. We have small groups that happen from time to time or Bible studies that are led to take that Word that we've been learning and teach us how to apply it in our life. How do, how do we make that come to life in, in us? You notice this morning the children aren't with us. They're in the back. We have children's workers that devote a lot of their time and their energy using the gifts that God's given them to teach our children. What it means to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What it means to live out that Christ-like life in the world. What a blessed thing. We have deacons. And boy, we have been having a wonderful time as a group of deacons uh, meeting together. We've been through six weeks of training on the, the Deacon I Want to Be by Johnny Hunt. And we just finished up this past Monday night, I think it was, this past Monday night. And some of the guys got together and said, we need to keep this up. So we're going to find a way to continue to do some uh, time together, uh, loving on each other, sharing with each other, studying God's Word. But what an awesome thing to think that God has given us deacons to help lead the church and serve the church. But you know, quite often, the direction of the church is set by the direction of its leadership. The direction of the church follows the leadership. If the leadership happens to be mission-minded, what does the church become? Mission-minded. 
If the leadership happens to be evangelistic-minded, going out and sharing the gospel, and that being their focus in their life, what does the church become? An evangelistic church, that, that, that tends to be its focus. If the leadership of the church is social-minded, what does the church become? Social-minded. What do I mean by that? Taking care of the needs of the poor, setting up food banks, and doing those sorts of things. None of, none of those things are wrong. I'm not throwing darts at any of those things. I'm just pointing out a picture to you. You know, the leadership a lot of times sets the tone for the church. That's why I think it's important <laughs> to ask the question, uh, who's leading the church? Who's leading the church? I think it's important that, that we should take a look at who is leading the church. And Joshua uh, 3.1 tells us that, that Joshua was set up by God to lead the people to the Jordan. To the Jordan. Joshua 3.3 tells us that the priests, the Levites, would lead the way across the Jordan. The way across. But look at the order in the third verse of chapter 3. I find it very interesting because it says this, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall leave this place and go after it. Notice the first thing that you see. It says, when you see the Ark of the Covenant and the priest, then you are to follow. At first glance, you may think that Joshua is leading the train. Found it interesting. After verse 1, when he's told to lead them to the Jordan, I don't see where he's told them to lead them anywhere else. He's got them where God said, take them. You may even think that the Levites are leading it. Because here they are. They're the ones that lead in worship. They're the ones that are going to be carrying the ark. They're the ones that are going to be doing those things. And it would be natural to say it's the, it's the priests that are leading them across, the Levites. And it's natural for us in the church to look at the pulpit and say, wherever that pastor goes, that's where I'm going. It's a natural assumption. But if you look closely, you will notice that it's neither of those two folks. It's not Joshua who was told to lead them to the Jordan. And it's not the preacher that's leading them across. If it's either one of those two things, you will find yourself in trouble. <laughs> you see, because if you look closely at Joshua 3, starting over, let's just start in that third verse, and we'll read down through the sixth verse. It says this, And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests and Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go. For you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant. And cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Notice nothing happens until the Ark moves. Nothing happens until the Ark moves. What then is this Ark of the Covenant? We've seen the box. We've seen the gold. We've seen the Raj. We've seen the movies where they're carrying it. We've heard the stories where somebody accidentally touched it and was killed. But what is this ark? What does it represent? See, this ark of the covenant represents to us as well as to them the presence of God. How do we know that? Look back in Exodus very quickly. Exodus chapter 25. 
This is where your fingers are going to get tired, but just stay with me. Exodus 25, verse 10. I'm going to go ahead and read as you find it. It says this, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubic and a half its width, and a cubic and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubic and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherub at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above it, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in the commandment to the children of Israel. What's so important about this ark? God gave very specific instructions on how to make it, which should give us an indication that there's something important. Notice he said to put in it an item or two. There's some others we'll talk about in the days ahead. But notice that he says, it's here. It's here that I'm going to reside. It's here that I'm going to meet you. See, for us, we have a tough time understanding that. Because for us, when Jesus came and died for our sins, he made a promise to us that when he left this place, he would indwell us with the Holy Spirit. For us, we're each walking around in some sense of the word, symbolizing the Ark of the Covenant in our bodies because we're carrying with us God. In this particular atmosphere, this Old Testament atmosphere, before Christ came and the Holy Spirit was sent down in His absence, they recognized this as the place that God would meet them. And see, there was this mercy seat on top that they recognized as being a place for the atonement of sins. It is this mercy seat where the priest would go in and there would be forgiveness given for the group. It was here that God would speak to Moses and give direction. Matter of fact, over in the 26th chapter, just a page or so over, it says this in the 31st verse. It says, And you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. Here's a theme going on. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp. Then you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony, remember we just talked about that, in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. See, this Ark of the Covenant was so important to God that inside of this tabernacle, the holy place, was a curtain that was hung. And behind that curtain was set this Ark of the Testimony. Because that was to be the place that the presence of God was. And it was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. This ark was so important that God made a special place for it to sit. This veil was to be hung there. And if you remember, that veil was thick. It was a thick veil. Behind it was the Holy of Holies containing the ark. And once a year, once a year, the high priest would go in. 
And he would go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, asking for forgiveness for the people. That's where they met God for forgiveness. And they saw this mercy seat, and they saw this ark, and they recognized this presence of God. Matter of fact, it's on over a book or two, on over a book or two into Deuteronomy that it tells us how important it is that, that this ark be tended for. In Deuteronomy 10.8 it says this, at that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi. Remember the Levites we just talked about in, in Joshua? Separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. You see, these Levites that have been preserved, this tribe that have been preserved at Joshua's time as they stood before the Jordan, this tribe that was about to pick up the ark and go across, were doing that thing that God had prescribed for them. They were to be the ministers to God. They were to carry the ark. It was so important to God that he didn't say, just find a couple of guys and grab it and let's go. He said, no, I'm setting aside this tribe. That that is their duty to maintain the worship of God and to take care of that ark. Now fast forward to Joshua's day. With that little bit of history, fast forward to Joshua's day. We see, we see the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant here is the central focus of this passage. It's the central focus of the passage Joshua 3, 4, it says, Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. So Joshua 3, chapter 4 tells us not only they're going to pick up this ark, but now he turns to the people and he says, They're going to pick up the ark, but here's what you must do. You must line up behind this ark at about 2,000 cubits. I don't know if you've measured anything out in a cubic recently, but I got really interested. What is 2,000 cubits? The best I could tell when I dug into it, it's about a half a mile. About a half a mile. So here this ark, the Levites are going to have it. They're standing before the Jordan. And all of us, we're going to line up behind this ark about a half a mile, a little over a half a mile behind this ark. And if you think about it for a minute, if I were to tell you we all needed to go out and line up a half a mile behind something, we'd have two choices, wouldn't we? The pastor could go get a half a mile behind whatever it is, and everybody could get behind him, couldn't he? It's only one problem with that. If I'm a half a mile behind it, the person behind me is a half a mile and two or three feet. By the time you get to the end of the line, you could be a mile behind it. The word said they were to line up a half a mile behind the ark, which gives me indication to me that they were lining up shoulder to shoulder behind the ark at a half a mile. <laughs> Picture that. Because keep in mind that historians tell us Joshua had somewhere between one and two million people with him. Could you picture, conservatively, one million people lined up shoulder to shoulder a half a mile behind this ark? Lined up a half a mile behind the ark. Why was it important that they lined up shoulder to shoulder a half a mile behind the ark? It was so that everyone's focus would be on the ark, which represented God. God did not want them following each other through the Jordan. That wasn't what he said. He said, follow the ark. God wanted each person in that group, all two million, if that's what it was, to only be following him. He wanted each person to focus on him, and he wanted them to go where he went. But the question arises, wasn't the priest going that way? Wasn't Joshua headed that way? 
Wasn't the whole bunch had what was wrong with them just following the priest? The priest said that way. Well, why could they just follow Joshua? <laughs> it's important that they lined up that way. Because God does not simply want you following the person in front of you. He doesn't want you just simply following the person in front of us. For instance, when you're asked, hey, why are you guys doing what you're doing down at the church? Why, why are y'all doing these things? Your answer could be, because that's what my church is doing. Or it could be, because that's what my Sunday school class does. We, we take up canned goods and we give them to Pender County Services. It could be because we've got a ministry doing that. We've got a group that, hey, we love to go out and help people who are in problems. That, that's, that's why we do it. Here's the big one. We're doing it because the pastor said do it. That's why we're doing it. There, there's the guy. That way, if it's wrong, it all falls on the pastor, right? So it's because the pastor. It could even be you're, you say, hey, we're doing it because that's, that's where the deacons are, are taking us. No. No. Unless you're doing it because God said do it, then don't do it. See, the answer to it should be I'm doing it because God said do it. Not because the pastor, the Sunday school teacher, the deacons, not because the Baptist Association sent us a message to say, hey, here's the greatest new thing that's come along to get people to come to church and hear about Jesus. No. If God didn't say do it, stop. The only reason we should do anything is because God said, go. We are to follow him. And Joshua told the people to sanctify themselves and to watch the movement of the ark. And when the ark moved, it meant God was doing something, that God was moving. And when God moved, they were to move. They weren't to go build a bridge. They weren't to go buy boats. They weren't to build a dam. So that it was When the ark moved, you moved. How different would our church look today if we were so focused on God that every time he moved, we moved? How much different would the world look like if every time God spoke to one of his people and said, go, the answer was yes. Yet many times our focus is not on what God is doing. Sadly to say, most time our focus is not on what God's doing. We're too busy focusing on what we want. We're too busy trying to decide what we think is his best. Or we're stuck on the way we've always done it. <laughs> or we're looking at what other churches are doing and saying, that's a great idea. Or we're trying to figure out the best way that we can in all of our wonderfulness attract people to our church. Matter of fact, we even turn sometimes to the North Carolina Baptist Association or the local association or the Southern Baptist Convention and say, hey, what's the latest, greatest program? What's the latest, latest greatest gimmick that gets people in the door? <laughs> or you know what? We even take some of the old things we've always done that have been effective that we know God's called us to do and we change those things. We put a new facelift on them and we change the way we do things because we've been told that the people don't come to church because they feel like it's old-fashioned. They don't come because they're not comfortable with, with what's being done. They don't come because the music's out of date. They don't come because the pastor dresses up in a suit and they don't want to have to hear a guy in a suit tell them things. I really don't care what they think. God told us to do one thing. Follow him. 
If he's told us to open the hymnal and sing out of it, we're going to open the hymnal and sing out of it. If he's told me as a pastor that I had better dress in such a way that honors him whenever I stand in the pulpit, that's what I'm going to do. If you don't, it doesn't matter to me. That's between you and God. God has told me that as a leader, I represent him. This is the best that I can do to represent him with what little he gave me to work with. <laughs> it doesn't bother me that someone stands in the pulpit and preaches without a tie or shorts on or a baseball cap. It makes no difference to me if God's told him to do it. You know what I say? Do it. We don't need to change how we present the gospel. We need to present the gospel. There's only one gospel and it never becomes old-fashioned. We need to know that God wants us to reach the lost and however He tells us to do it, if it's sitting out there in that yard under a tent preaching the gospel, we need to put up the tent. It doesn't matter about how we've done it for years. It doesn't matter about how grandmama and granddaddy said it. It doesn't matter what the music is. If it's glorifying God and God's told us to do it, we need to fire up the piano and do it. God could care less if we're going where others are going. He could care less if we're going where we've always been. He could care less where we want to go. None of those things come into play. God doesn't care what the statistics say about what programs are best to reach the lost. God doesn't care what the majority is doing. The ten, if you remember, or even what would put the most people in the building on Sunday morning. God has promised a land he wants to lead us into. God has a promise for us as Morse Creek Baptist Church. God has set before us a place for us. The only way we're going to get there is following him. If we're following anything other than God, we need to repent. We need to repent personally. We need to repent corporately. We need to fall on our face and sanctify ourselves through the precious forgiveness given by a merciful, gracious God. And then we need to look. Where's the ark? Where's God? Where's he moving? And then we need to go. No program, no policy, no religious doctrine, no music will lead a single person to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior if God is not in it. We could preach till we're blue in the face. We could pass out tracks till we go broke. We could sing till we're hoarse. If God isn't in it, not a single person is going to come to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. All God wants His people to do is join Him in what He is doing so that He receives the glory for it. It's not how smart we are. It's not what creative program we could come up with. Because at the end of the day, any man-made program or religious activity, no matter how long you've been doing it, will only bring glory to the one doing it if God's not in it. I'm not here to gain glory. I'm here to give the glory to the one that pulled me out of the wretchedness of my sin and set me in the life that can only come through his son, Jesus Christ. And there will be a day that I will stand before the one who outstretched his arms on a cross and died for me. And I'm going to be asked, what did you do? What did you do with what I gave you? And I want to be able to say, here's your crown because I did it for your glory. I'm not here to gain glory. I'm not here to gain honor. I'm here to show the world my Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to examine what we do as a church and only continue to do the things we know God has called us to do. That could mean giving up some things 
you hold dear to your heart. But if God's not in it, it's a sin against a holy God. Do I know what those things are? No. God called me to get you to the Jordan. Now you're God's responsibility. God's going to take us across. There's going to be some things we're going to leave behind. There's going to be some new things we pick up. There's going to be some challenges that we don't know how to face. But there's one thing I know. God knows it all. God's already prepared the way. God's already set the path. God's already given us everything we need to get there in His Son, Jesus Christ. How do we do this? It starts with preparation. Have we prepared ourselves to follow? Have we been truthful with God about the sin in our life? Have we fallen on our face before Him asking for forgiveness for those things we have done as well as those things we have not done? Then it continues by focusing everything that we are individually and corporately only on the person who leads. And that is God. God and God alone. Can you say this morning that you've prepared yourself for what God wants you to do? Can you honestly look a holy God in the face and say, God, I've been honest with you about my life. There's not a thing that I hold back. There's not a sin that I know of that I have not confessed. There's not a gift that you've given me that I have not used. There's not a time that you've called me that I have not gone. Can you this morning say that you've prepared? Can you say that you're standing at the Jordan in full fellowship with God because there is not a sin in your life that is breaking that fellowship this morning? Can you say that at the end of the day, you're only focused on what God wants? That you're willing to take your pride? You're willing to take, take what you think is best and set it aside? And only do that which God has called us to do. That's a tough one. Are you willing to say, hey, I really think we ought to do it this way, but it doesn't matter what I think, what does God think? Are you willing to step out in places that may be a little difficult for you? Are you willing to take chances because God said take chances? If not, guess what? Today could be the day. That you see the ark in a whole new way. How do you do that? First and foremost, you don't even know what's, what the ark is unless you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. See, to be in right fellowship with God means to be saved by the blood of His precious Son, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, at the end of the day, the one question you will not get when you get to heaven is how long have you been going to church? That's not going to be the question. The question is also not going to be, were your mom and dad saved? Not going to be the question. The question is not even going to be, did you help out the church? Did you do things? Did you help other people? Did you, did you live a good life? Not going to be the question. How do I know that? The Bible says that. As a matter of fact, it says that every, all of our good deeds apart from Christ are as filthy rags. It's funny that he told them to sanctify themselves by taking off those filthy rags now, doesn't it? And putting on the righteousness of Christ. How do you put on the righteousness of Christ? Recognizing, first and foremost, you're covered in filthy rags. 
No matter how good your life is, it doesn't measure up to the bar. There's only one bar. It's Jesus Christ. There is no halfway point. Anything a millimeter short of the bar has a destination called hell. The only measure is Christ. Can I reach the bar? No. But the one who stretched his arms out on the cross and died for my sins put the bar in place and stands with his arms stretched out across that bar. And all he says to me is this, recognize you can't do it. Be willing to give up your life like I'm giving up my life for you and trust in me. Trust in what I have done. Trust that when God sent me, he said that he so loved the world that he gave me his only begotten son for you. Understand that you are a sinner. It says that we all sin to come short of the glory of God. Understand that, that at the end of the day, that sin in your life, the Bible tells us that sin leads to death, eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell where there's gnashing of teeth, where there's wailing, where there is no peace. Understand there's only one way to avoid that, and that is to say, Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. You are the only one that can save me. And I recognize that you died for my sins, that you were buried, that you rose three days later, just like the Bible says, so that I might have life eternal. It's simply saying, no longer will I lead the way. I'll follow that ark. That's where it starts. I remember I said some things that we have to give up may be painful. One of the most painful things you're going to have to give up is the pride in your life. And this could be the area of giving up. Not placing the trust in your church membership or your Sunday school attendance or your singing in the choir, your ability to preach or lead music, not trusting any of that. But coming to the realization that there's never been a time in your life, no matter how many times you've sat in this pew, that you've turned it all over to Jesus. This is for eternity. Is it worth worrying about what someone else thinks about you to spend eternity in a place called hell? I think not. We must be prepared. Maybe this morning you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're prepared. You know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You've given your life to Him, but you know that you've fallen short in some areas. Guess what? The same God that saves you from sin will forgive you of those trespasses against Him after you've come to know His Son, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But again, He requires something of you. That you be willing to humble yourself before the Lord and ask for that forgiveness. That you be willing to say, God, I know that you've saved me, but I've messed up. There's been places you've called me I have not gone. There's been things I've done I wish you didn't know about. There's thoughts in my mind that I wish would go away. You come. You ask for forgiveness because you know my favorite Bible verse, John, 1 John 1, 9. Only God, only God is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. All he asks is that you come. That you humble yourself and come. Maybe this morning you know that you've been saved. You know that you've been forgiven of those sins even after you were saved. But you've never placed your heart in fellowship with other hearts that are looking towards the ark to cross over the Jordan. What do I mean by that? Maybe you don't have a church home. Maybe you don't have a place that the Bible is opened and told to you. And the Bible makes all the difference in the world in your life because it is proclaimed. It's not about the sideshow. It's not about the music. It's not about the flashy screens. It's about God and His Word. Maybe you don't have a place that you can let God use those things in your heart that He has given you to impact the world. We'd love to have you. 
How does it start? First and foremost, you must know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Second, you must be baptized by immersion. Why do I say that? Not because I'm a Baptist, but because the Bible says it. You must be baptized after you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Notice the word after. There are some that were baptized as children later in life, came to know that they weren't saved, and they came forward and got saved. Yet they've never sucked it up and gone and got baptized the believer's baptism. You must be obedient. Christ says, and it's repeated over and over and over in the Bible, first they came to salvation, then they were baptized. Maybe this morning you just know in your heart it just welled up in you that you know what? I was baptized, but it was really before I come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Guess what the answer to that burden in your life that the devil will use until you fix it? Guess what the answer is? To come and say, Pastor, I've never had believers baptized. I want to be baptized. Guess what the church is going to do? We're going to rejoice. A party's going to break out, and we're going to give you a baptism. Maybe this morning. Those are the things that weigh heavy upon your heart. Maybe today you say, Pastor, I've got all those in line. What's in this for me? Look to the ark. Commit to get on your knees and say, God, where are you going? And then when you get off your knees, go. You don't need any other instruction. He will give you that which you need. This morning I pray God has spoken to your heart. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.